When things are badly broken, shattered into a million pieces, all we can see is the dark disconnection from what was once whole. But within the cracks, between the many pieces, there is always space. It is through these cracks that the light can shine through. These are the words of today's guest, Lisa Luckett. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. As was true of the entire world, today's guest found her life completely changed when America experienced the completely unanticipated, unprepared for, unimaginable trauma and loss of 9-11. However, unlike so many of us, 9-11 changed Lisa Luckett's life in a very deep and personal way. Lisa, Lisa's husband died in the 9-11 attacks. Today, Lisa, the author of The Light of 9-11, shares her particular experience and recovery, if you will, in the years that have passed. Lisa, welcome back to Mind Talk. Oh, Dr. Brewer, Pamela, it's so nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Well, it is delightful to hear your voice again. I know you've been very busy. I want to start at the very beginning, because some of for some people, the title of your book might actually be kind of startling. The Light in 9-11? Help us understand your title. That's actually a very good point. Uh, it took me now 17 years to have checked the, the temperament of our world to see if people were actually ready to hear a positive story of 9-11. And in 2016, I heard the promotion for, you know, in that same heartbreak I also witnessed the best of humanity. So that's why the light in 9-11. So the, the truth about the book is it's really about healing from trauma and choosing to see the light in our struggles, the lessons that were being shown, instead of being defensive against them, to actually lean into them and say, wait a minute, why am I, why am I being shown this? What am I supposed to learn? And then finally, the healing power of kindness. And especially in our world today where there's so much trauma, it seems like it's daily, that we can hopefully look at this now in a, I'm hoping to expose a new way to kind of reframe that and just shift perspective, you know, 10% over to look at things in a new way. Tell us what Sir Thriving is. Ah, Sir Thriving. Sir Thriving is a word that I made up <laughs> that <laughs> is a combination of not only surviving, but thriving through your challenges. In other words, the litmus test when you're finished with going through and you're on the other side of, a, of grief or struggle or a problem of any kind, the question you have to ask yourself is, am I better for having lived it? Huh. So that's her thriving. So thriving is really about choosing to live life fully. And that can mean taking a step back and being derailed and you know taking a huge hit and grief or loss of any kind. But that is a temporary place to be ultimately life keeps going and you know we have this incredible gift to be here so we're in it together and and a lot of my story is about allowing myself to to learn to receive and so that's part of this this ongoing conversation but but that's her thriving so thriving is really about leaning in and making the best of a situation and seeing the the lessons and the gifts that were given to you through it. You know, there's so many people who, 
after experiencing a tragedy, you know, may ultimately get to where you are, but they feel guilty that perhaps they're not feeling guilty about the experience or the loss. So sort of help us understand that piece. It is so true, and and it's great that you brought that up because we have so much inherent shame, and it comes from, it's my opinion, um, that it comes from our training, societal training, and it comes from the generational training of the multi-generations before us. It's almost like the primal memory, if you will. It's almost at a DNA level that, that we think we're bad first. We don't think we're good first. So very often, it was my experience and, and part of my story, which this is, is in the book, to watch people going through death in my life, that they made themselves feel badly when they weren't really feeling badly. They shamed themselves into making their trauma and their grief worse. Because my experience is that nature actually ebbs and flows. So you get kind of numb. I was numb for a year because I had so much to do and it was so big. And I was literally kind of the last man standing in this emotional chaos I was living in with family and friends and children and everything. And I was given that in that moment. I was given this grace, this, in, this intelligence or this intuition that guided me. And I let go to it instead of countermanding it. And I think your point is people feel guilty because they're countermanding their natural emotions. Right. And, so. and, it, and it is so hard when we have that experience. Tell us a little bit about Lisa, little Lisa. Lisa <laughs> growing up. And, and part of why I asked that question is the, the subtitle of your book is Shocked by Kindness, healed by love and one of the things that I recall during our first conversation was really hearing your shock that people were being kind and caring and the difficulties that you had with reaching out for help with accepting um, the kindness but your your young life kind of taught you to be silent I think Absolutely. Definitely did. Yeah, I I had a – my first 40 years were spent being confused and misunderstanding and misunderstood by others. So I was was bullied at home and at school within the normal parameters of society. You know, so I have – and one of the things I talk about in the book is the insidious, subtle slight. And it's something I've thought about more or less my entire life because it's those little – Remarks. It's those little off-putting comments. It's those little criticisms that one or two along the way is not a big deal, but when you get them every day from every person, that in itself amounts to a massive trauma. So the compilation of micro-traumas can be as devastating as one you know, catastrophic trauma, which is my life story. So the first 40 years were just years of, of literally – my insecurity being so profound and my self-loathing so deep that my filter was, my lens was just completely skewed to see everything as, you know, a negative as, as far as my, my fitting in or people loving me or liking me or just so much self-doubt after years and years of, of, you know, this experience and not being seen or heard. And or given enough attention. And so we all as children have different 
needs of levels of attention. And I was born in my situation, which is also explained in the story, is as to why. And it's not that anybody did this intentionally. It's just that the people I was dealing with were, were so damaged from their lives. And the word dysfunction comes up, but, you know, dysfunction is kind of clinical. But the truth is it wasn't functional. <laughs> we were not – I was not seen as this child and nurtured and raised. I was dealing with the damage and the repercussions of the behavior of the adults around me based on their trauma because there was no emotional education at all in my family. And I believe in kind of the whole point of writing the book and talking to you today and, and my work going forward is, a re is really about bringing emotional health into the forefront and really about she, like thwarting the stigma around mental health and, and asking for help and going and putting your life out there and not being shamed around what we've all been taught, which is you don't talk about your family or yourself or your feelings. And then let's take it out further, especially as women, the message to me, and, and I, I mean, I tend to generalize, but I kind of assume that most people have a similar experience at some level as I do, because we're kind of in this together. But women, of, I'm 58 years old. My message to, from my mother and my grandmother, the other women in my life, I don't have a big family, was to ask for anything that I was selfish. And again, that's not so unique, unfortunately, and you're right. Uh, and to think about yourself was considered selfish. Lisa Luckett, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we will continue. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk and a conversation with the author of The Light in 9-11. We'll be right back. Lisa, as the as as your life progressed, when you you talk about the the teachings that you had from your family, and of course we all learn from our families. Yes, I mean we learn as much from what they say as from what they don't say. That's right. It's kind of amazing that you were able to actually choose a mate who sounds like he was so affirming and so positive for you and, and for your family. It's true. He, he actually, my mother and my husband are similar, were similar in personality as, as I was much more aligned with my father. So I'm the alpha, aggressive, you know, um, controlling, natured person. And my husband and my mother were the laid back, kind of rolls the punches, and so the yin to our yang. And I was very grateful to meet Teddy Luckett. He was absolutely as lovely and heartfelt and fun-loving as you could find. And he made me better, and I made him better. So that's what I say to my young adult children. And looking for your partner, what you're trying to do is find somebody that actually the sum of the parts is greater than the separate, than the you know, sum of the whole or however that goes. You know, that you're, you make your, each other better. You bring the best out in each other. And I was very, very fortunate despite my – my upbringing, but there's a reason as to why, you know, I, I worked my way through my, my early trauma in my mid twenties. And by the time I was 26, when I met Teddy and he, um, I didn't sub, I didn't sabotage myself in the relationship as I would have without the struggle I'd gone through for the few years before that. So, you know, our struggle is, you know, the, to make it back and to work through these things and not give up 
really built, in my case, built my self-esteem back. But my husband, as dear and sweet and beautiful and wonderful as he was, was from a very, very, very dysfunctional family. So we do marry what we know. Mm-hmm. I just had a different version with him. And, and so I married a – I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say I think that's an important piece for people listening to understand that we do tend to marry who we know. Right. Right. So what I, what I got from my husband wasn't my, the controlling father figure that traditionally, you know, I, I probably should have, or, you know, I did date people like that, but luckily did not marry that. But I did marry someone who didn't really have my back. He loved me. He just wasn't a fighter and he was a lover and his family, the women in his family were, were, uh, I can't even, there's not even words. They were so bad. And he just turned a blind eye to it. Just like my mother turned a blind eye to my, the, my father's behavior and the behavior in my household with my grandmother and my aunt, all of which were very, were mean, were mean and, and cruel kind of. So not directly. So in my case, it's all indirect and, and subtle. And those are the most difficult things to put your finger on. Mm-hmm. So you as a person end up feeling like it's you. Absolutely. No one else sees it when, right? When your mother, you're like, mom, this really hurts. This is happening. And she's like, no, 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 it doesn't. No, you're not. She loves you. And I'm like, wow, that is not the experience I'm having. But I must be wrong because my mother loves me and she's going to do, and she's smarter and she's older and she's an adult and she must be right. So I must be wrong. And so begins that unbelievable self-doubt. And then I married my husband who would do the same thing. <laughs> he was great otherwise, but yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Tell us if you can. I, I'm going to ask you to do something impossible, um, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm up for it. Go for it. Okay. I'm going to ask you to give us a thumbnail sketch of 9-11. What was going on for you that day? Well, I was in a really bad place, personally, very bad. I was had just turned 41. I have a birthday in early September. I was four months postpartum with my third child uh, and nursing him with two with a four-year-old and a seven-year-old and deep in the throes of motherhood. And my experience of motherhood was very different than what I expected. And I was at a place where all I felt was mind-numbing drudgery. And I wasn't getting any help from anybody. I wasn't asking for help either, mind you. Okay, so, but, but when my parents would visit, they would sit down to be entertained. They wouldn't help me with the kids. They wouldn't cook. They wouldn't bring, they wouldn't lift a finger. And my husband would entertain them because that was more fun. <laughs> and that's what they demanded. And that was the way we were cultured. You know, that was the, that was how the family structure had always been. We entertained my parents. So I was so resentful by the end of that summer that going into 9-11, I was just brutally postpartum depressed as well, which I didn't realize. And so Teddy asked me if he could go sailing with his friends the following weekend. He called me at work on the Monday, the 10th, September 10th. And he, um, I stewed about that all, all day. And by the time he got home, I put the kids to bed and laid into him, like, how could you be so inconsiderate to ask me about going away? Like, on the weekends, you're all I've got. Otherwise, I am drowning here. I am seriously submerged. And he was struggling at work, and he was having a really rough time himself. So the two of us were in very individually very unhappy places. 
I'm sure I wasn't giving him what he needed either. Yeah. So we had this, this clearing of the air, if you will, and he listened to me patiently as he always did. And so um, I calmed down as, because I had been heard. People just need to be heard. We don't necessarily need to fix problems. We can't fix someone else's problems. Really, people, we just need to be, have a sounding board. And that's what he was so great about. And he just calmed me down. And we you know, slept in our customary spoon that night. And when he woke up in, and left in the morning at about quarter to six, I said to him, you know, I love you, honey, and I'm so sorry. And you are my soulmate. And he walked out the door, and that's the last time I saw him. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine what that would feel like. Not as hard as feeling it, clearly, but it's hard to imagine that that experience of being so unprepared and then never seeing him again for reasons that you had nothing to do with. Well, it's very interesting that you use the word prepared because if you want to take the story to the next place, so... The, the plane, I get home in the morning and I, a friend, the phone is ringing as I walk in. I had taken my daughter Jen to school a little late. She wasn't feeling well. So we walked in about, 10 of, about 5 of 9 and my phone is ringing and my friend asked, you know, what building is Teddy in? And I said, the one with the antenna on it, why? And she said, well, turn on the TV because a plane just hit it and took off the top 15 floors, which was pretty massively incorrect information. <laughs> so she didn't ask me what floor he was on. In my mind, he was dead already on the ground. So I turned on the TV and had this bizarre moment of, oh, my gosh, you could be okay. It's still standing. But um, so I went through the whole morning and the crisis of the morning. And a couple hours after the buildings fell, I found my place, myself in this very surreal place, heightened, heightened awareness. I had had a very intuitive understanding and prescient understanding that, A, our world had completely shifted on its axis, that all the rules were broken. Anything we knew before was over. And the only thing I could do was trust myself. So all of my life, my 40 years of listening to every single other person in the world but me, I started listening to me because it was only about my kids. And in my opinion, my warrior came out, and I knew what I was going to do, despite what anyone said to me. And that was basically the premise with which I started the whole thing. And it wasn't a conscious thing. It was a knowing. Because in crisis, in trauma, it's an opener. Yeah. And what comes in but guidance, if you let it. You talk in the, uh, in, in the book about certainly the day 9-11 and the days that followed with, again, an outpouring of love and, and help from so many people, but you also talk about the impact of your husband's death on your family. Right, the myth of family in crisis. Is that what the chapter yeah. you're thinking of? Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. So we, I was cultured, my parents were teenagers and you know, high school and college in the 50s. So post-World War II. And that generation is called the silent generation. It's small, and it's a very different generation, I think, than pretty much any other. So they, um, they told me they knew everything. There was an era, kind of an ego, an arrogance to their thinking, very kind of, nar- if you'll forgive the terms, but kind of narcissistic. You know, and, and there was no, it wasn't ever a dialogue. It was a one-way 
conversation. And you weren't allowed to express yourself or ask questions unless you agreed. And if you agreed, you were loved. And if you didn't agree, you were not loved. So it was an, ex- an exercise in conditional love. So it, it just, everything was off center. So when 9-11 happened, I thought my parents would take care of me. They were my parents. They knew everything, right? They they'd set themselves up. Well, the truth is they were completely useless in a most approaching a most loving way I can say that um, they made it about them but what it is is now I see you know stepping away from the kind of snarky aspect of an anger of, a, of an abused child and a neglected child the truth is the trauma was so big they loved Ted like a son they were so awash in their own grief and their own terror that they couldn't even get to me it wasn't in their nature to get to me in the first place. They thought they did. It was all kind of an, a mental exercise of I'm a good parent and I'm there, but they never actually took the steps to do those things. So the myth of family in crisis to me is that the people you think are going to be there for you very often are not, but they are justified in the sense that the trauma is so close to them that they're in their own moment of grief as well. So that allows me to forgive them. But that took me a long time to process. Sure. Um, You know, and I've I've asked a lot of people along the way through death experiences, through cancer diagnoses and stuff. And and I say, are the people, were the people there for you that you thought would be? And almost to a person, they say no. Even their friends, friends disappear because they can't handle it. Yeah, and that's such an important piece for you to share that that sense of oh my goodness the person I thought was going to absolutely be there for me is very often the person who's not for all kinds of reasons Lisa, yes. we're, we're going to take a break but when we come back I mean you've done a great deal of internal work to get to where you are and you talked about a shift that occurred in sort of your experience when you read a passage on the back of a grief pamphlet. That's what we will start with when we come back. So folks, don't go away. We'll return in just a moment. Lisa, the passage that you reference in your book, The Lighted 9-11, it's a very brief one, Um, and it said, although we have lost so much, we still have so much left. Is that a birdie I hear in the background? Mm, That was my phone tweeting. I apologize. (laughs) I'll turn that that bad boy off. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, it definitely sounded like a tweet, so it's doing its job. It is. It is. So tell me about that that sentence. It's so it's such a small sentence, but it says so much. We've lost so much, but we have so much left. Well, and and that is kind of the the platform, the stepping off place of everything. So it was about three weeks after Teddy died, and and you know I told my kids over a period of a few days that there was a fire and. He was going to be okay, and then there, you know, no one was heard from, and we couldn't find him, and then ultimately that he died in a fire. 
So my kids, my oldest were seven and four, and I was tucking them in. I read this brief, this grief pamphlet, which of course things were like flying in my door all, of all magnitude of, of giving coming at me. And I pick up this very nondescript grief pamphlet. On the, on the back it says, although we've lost so much, we still have so much left. And it resonated with this unbelievable beauty and grace that I witnessed the morning of 9-11 when I had this wake up, when I woke up to understand I felt Ted behind me propping me up, and I, could, and I knew that I had to learn to receive in order to, do, to help the people in my life, to help my friends and family. I had to let them give to me, and it almost <laughs> killed me, but I, something told me to do it, and I surrendered. And in that moment was literally a wash in gratitude, humility, and grace from showing my vulnerability. So all I saw from that point forward was this beautiful, unbelievable resiliency of the human spirit. What I call the godness of 9-11 was this incredible grace that came with it amidst the tragedy, amidst the trauma, amidst the pain. So that sentiment, although we've lost so much, we still have so much left, resonated exactly the way I was feeling about my experience. And I told my kids that night when I tucked them in, and their little faces lit up from ear to ear because they needed to know that one day it would be okay. Yeah. And, and it will be okay. Everything ultimately will be okay. The sun comes up every morning. It started on September 12th. It came up every morning. I remember being very aware of that, aware of the weather, aware of how beautiful. You know, at the same time, the only thing that had changed was us. Everything else was the same. Given the childhood that you experienced, and certainly given the tremendous loss of your spouse, you also at some point had a diagnosis of your own. I have to say, so many people would say, oh my, could you give me a break? Universe, give me a break. Can you very briefly talk about that as we're kind of running out of time here? Sure, of course. Yes, I had a breast cancer diagnosis on an annual exam, so caught on an ultrasound, so caught early in early 2009. And when I got over the shock of that, which was shorter certainly than my 9-11 shock, but what I realized was I was being tested. And I was being tested for this. Can you, in fact, develop a skill set for trauma management? And the answer is yes. That your life is always showing you and giving you the experiences you need to prepare you for the next thing that's coming. And that we talked about briefly about being prepared. I was prepared for Teddy's death from prior life experiences when he walked down in the bombing in 1993 and because his mother told me he was going to have a heart attack every time I saw her for 10 years. So I ran his death through my mind hundreds of times. And you can get yourself just as worked up at the idea of an event as the event itself. So ironically crazy in a twisted way, on the morning of 9-11, a couple hours after the buildings fell, I found that I was fine. I was calm. I was in so much shock, and everybody around me was reacting, so I didn't have to. And they were submerging me in their love and their support. So I was literally being lifted, not submerged. I was being buoyant by that, you know, held buoyant. And so as a result, what I realized is I, now looking back, I started 9-11 like two steps ahead of everybody else because I had dealt with terrorism already, and I, had, and I wasn't surprised. They went back in by, with, by choice. They went back into those buildings knowing they were targets. 
So somewhere in my subconscious, I never got angry again because of that. What do you want folks to take away from today's conversation and from the light in 9-11? That their, their struggles are being shown to them as lessons. And as painful as they are, there are incredible gifts in all of them. And it's, it's not like the, the godness, the kindness is love. It's subtle. It's quiet. It's not going to offset the magnitude of the loss, but it can be, become this energetic cord that holds you as you're tipping on the edge of the abyss, the abyss into hopelessness, the abyss into despair. And slowly but surely, you can be pulled back by that cord to find your footing again. Lisa, how can people find out more about you and what you're doing? There's so much more to your life story and to all the things you're doing. Tell people how to find out about it all. The newest and best way would be my new author website, which is very exciting, lisaluckett.com, which is L-I-S-A-L-U-C-K-E-T-T.com. And that uh, has links to my other website, which is cosmina.com, which is a brand of kindness. And ultimately, the truth behind this book is really it's the first of three. And it's the micro, so I introduce myself, I meet you, my reader, and we become friends. And if you don't agree with me, at least you might relate to me. And at the very least, you will trust me because I have so much more to share with you. And the Cosmina brand is a 20-year plan, and this is year five in bringing the brand to the world. Well, it sounds to me like we're going to have to have you back another couple of times or so. <laughs> we are going to be old friends by the end of this, Pamela, <laughs> for sure. That sounds very reasonable. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your wisdom. It is my pleasure, and I wish all of your beautiful listeners just happiness and joy and, and to remember to just lean into the struggle because it always looks worse when you're looking out at it than when you're actually in it. Thank you very much for that. And folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a mental health, medical health, or other professional. You can always listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's M Y N D. T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. And I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening today. So do send an email to me at Pamela, that's P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. And don't forget about our free weekly giveaway. Just go to the homepage uh, at mindtalk.org, fill out your information, and perhaps you'll be one of the folks who gets a free gift every week. Folks, thank you again for listening, and remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. Take care.